Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. So David, my friend, how does it feel to have a guest on the Paracast who has a pedigree? <laughs> Not just a degree, a pedigree. That's right. We've had some fairly decent guests on the show, Gene. I mean, if you look at Stanton Friedman, certainly he's got a pedigree. Lauren Coleman is uh, the top of his field, without any question. But I think you're right. Tonight's guest is a very special treat in that we've got someone here who is part of what is probably the most important, certainly misunderstood in many ways, and um, detailed UFO cases in modern history, the Roswell episode, which I don't think anything gets quite close to it in terms of the amount of buzz and information and interest that a single case has generated in the UFO field. One of the big problems with Roswell, of course, is that it happened in 1947, so many of the people who were adults when it happened are no longer with us to talk about it. But in the case of Jesse Marcel Jr., he was 11 years old when his father, Major Jesse Marcel, stationed at Roswell Army Airfield, woke him up in the middle of the night. That's right. When, when all this happened. And Dr. Marcel has written a book called Roswell, It Really Happened. I gather this book, which tells his story in his words, will be out in the next few months. But we have him here tonight. Very exciting. It Very is. Exciting. We, we can actually get a first-hand account of someone who was there. He has claimed, I mean, I've heard some of his stories, uh, as I'm sure you have, Gene, and Jesse claims that he handled materials, that he handled this beam of metal with strange hieroglyphic inscriptions on it. I, I have no reason not to believe the guy, and it's interesting to me that this happened to him when he was 11 years old, Gene, because that's the same age at which I had the Caracas episode happen to me, my brother, my family, and many other people. Uh, that's a very impressionable age. So I can definitely relate to how Jesse feels about this in that an experience like that, your father walking in the middle of the night saying, hey, look at this, this is probably from another planet. It's not something you're likely to forget or even remember in different detail. It, it, that kind of a, an experience, I think, would create a very indelible impression. And I'm very excited that we're going to talk to uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. tonight. And this 11-year-old factor. I was 11, as some of our listeners recall, when my late brother put a book by Major Donald Kehoe, Flying Saucers from Outer Space, on his coffee table back at his apartment in Brooklyn, New York. I was 11 years old then. I picked up this book, and I said, can I read that? It was a library book. And he said, no, it's not due for a few weeks, so just take it home with you. I read the book. I was hooked. I was 11. Something about 11 years old. Something about that age. I don't know what it is. Uh, It's like it's a mystical number. It ties right into the seven, doesn't it? Mm. (laughs) Hmm. But I'm, I've got a lot of questions for Jesse Marcel Jr. tonight. I mean, I'm dying to know what happened with his father after this whole thing. We we know from the accounts that uh, Jesse Marcel Sr. ended up having to recant a bunch of his story and to basically backpedal on everything that had come out initially. There's that one picture of him that I find very telling, Gene, where he's sort of squatted down next to what is clearly debris from some kind of a balloon or something, conventional debris. And uh, he was presenting this as, oh, here's the stuff we found. And there's a look on his face, there's a look in his eyes, Gene, that's very telling. you, You can see the pain that this man was going through knowing that he had experienced and had touched stuff that he felt really wasn't from this planet. 
Now he was being asked to create a cover story and to essentially do his job as a good soldier. And uh, that look in his face, I, that has stuck with me. I'm really curious to know from Jesse Marcel Jr., what really happened in his house after all this went down and his father theoretically had to make up a cover story and to go along with this, how did this impact what they had both seen? I have a lot of, of questions about the Roswell episode, Gene. I, I have some doubts about certain aspects of it, but I find it hard to believe that nothing actually happened there. The fact that the government has revisited it more than a few times. The fact that as recently as just like five, within the past five or six years, the Air Force has released further statements about Roswell. I mean, if nothing happened there, why the heck do they keep bringing it up? They remind us. They have to come here, the Air Force, and say, ladies and gentlemen, we'll tell you again. Ten years later, it didn't happen. It was really a balloon, Project Mogul, or one of those things. Let me tell our listeners, by the way, we don't mention this enough on the show. We have, I think, one of the Internet's most interesting UFO and psychic phenomena-oriented message boards at theparacast.com. I mean, literally, it's just an exciting place to be. And if you go to theparacast.com and we have a bunch of links to the message forums, click on them, join up. There's no obligation. Just become a member and participate. Tell us about yourself. We even have a place now called Introduction where you just basically tell us who you are and why you're interested in the subject, and then you can really get involved in everything. A lot of times the people who appear on the show will also Mm -hmm. participate. I know I participate. David... <laughs> Sometimes I participate a little too much. Well, I wasn't going to say that, my friend. <laughs> well, did you see, um, speaking of the discussion forums, in just the last few days, we have a new member on there who's been posting some really, really interesting stuff. There's a document sitting up there, Gene, that I don't want to go into too much detail on right now, but it talks about all sorts of details about experimental Air Force aircraft that I was reading this, Gene, and my eyes were popping out of my head. Some of the detail and some of what's claimed in this poster's message, you've got to see this. It is really outrageous. It's fascinating. Again, I'm not sure about the credibility of it. It it sounds almost uh, too outrageous to be true, but uh, it details some experimental aircraft that have all sorts of really esoteric exotic propulsion systems that uh, I wouldn't have guessed we were that far along in some next generation craft that are described in this post. I'm not going to say another word about it, Gene. Go to the discussion forum, everybody. Go look for this. It will boggle your mind. Hey, let me give you a shortcut. Okay, I'll try to make it easy, saying, you know, theparacast.com, okay. click in the forums. But here's the secret shortcut, okay? Yeah. Just in case NSA is listening right now to the Paracast right. with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, here it is. I'm going to whisper it, okay? All right. com slash SMF. Small Mental Begula? Yes. <laughs> takes you right to the message boards and from there if you click on the link go right back to the show page all right that's a secret okay i don't okay. want you people to tell us and don't tell the nsa because they want to know what's going on you know it's also Hard funny in the in the prelude to this show dr marcel was actually you know he's an army surgeon okay he's active army surgeon you darn right he's an active army surgeon and what yeah. he was going to do ladies and gentlemen he was going to talk to us direct from his office 
And his wife said, no, don't do that. So we're calling him at his home. Yeah, we don't want to do this on government time because uh, then they might uh, send us a bill, Gene. I think we're already doing it on government time. <laughs> You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the well, Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. And in case you're wondering why we're here, it's to explore the unknown. And today we have a really famous guest. I mean, we're really honored this person has decided to just come aboard. Dr. Yeah. Jesse Marcel Jr. He's an army surgeon. Okay. And I gather he does head and neck surgery, which means that if you know one of our listeners breaks my neck over something I've said on the show, I just go to Dr. Marcel and he'll fix me up. No, he will laugh as you die at his feet. No, I'm only kidding. He wouldn't do that. Jane, well, he can always there? say, of course, I'm not here. He can always say, well, I tried. Uh, yeah, no, he sounds like the kind of guy that would go out of his way to help you, me, or anybody else who needed it. I he, think he's so, a too. mensch, Gene. He sounds like a mensch. And I suspect we're going to have one of our most interesting interviews this evening. And a reminder, later on on the PowerCast, we'll be hearing from Bob White, author of UFO Hard Evidence. And he'll tell us about the hard evidence. Another reminder that if you have a comment or a question, send your letter to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, or visit our online forums at theparacast.com. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Dr. Marcel, I think we consider you one of the most important living figures with regard to the Roswell UFO enigma. And it all started like it has for some of us, like David and myself, at the age of 11, which seems to be a very significant age. So what happened to you when you were 11 years old that got you involved in this? Well, it was uh, late one night in July of 1947. I was uh, out of school at that time and having fun uh, riding bicycles and playing with my friends. And uh, late one night or early one morning, uh, 
at least I'd been in bed for several hours. My dad got me up to look at some debris that he was bringing in from the desert out of uh, uh, out of rank somewhere northwest of Roswell. And he had uh, awakened my mother and myself up to look at some very strange material indeed. And that's where this got started. Okay, the strange material. Your father, your late father, was a major that's correct. in the Army, right? Uh, Army Air Force. Okay, what kind of work did he do? How did he get involved in all this? Well, his partners uh, came about because he was the intelligence officer for the 509th Bomb Group, which, as you knew, was the only uh, atomic bomb group in the world at that time. And uh, as uh, intelligence officer, it was his job to investigate strange occurrences, you know, to see what the, the story is. From the story, as I later found out, a rancher had brought some material in from, the, from his ranch, some strange stuff that he never saw before, and he wasn't sure what the nature of it is. So he brought it into the sheriff's office there at Chavez County. And the sheriff looked at it and agreed that, well, I don't know what this stuff is either. So what he did, he called the base commander, Colonel Blanchard, who was uh, my dad's boss. And uh, Colonel Blanchard said, well, look, uh, go over and take a look at this and tell me what you think. I guess my dad went over to the sheriff's office to look at this debris, and uh, he uh, contacted Colonel Blanchard and said, look, I don't know what this is. It's not anything I've ever seen before. So Colonel Blanchard said, well, look, you and uh, the CIC agent go out there to the ranch, follow the rancher out there, and uh, get some of this stuff material up so I can take a look at it. So that's what they did. Uh, I guess uh, the CIC officer and my dad drove out with uh, uh, the rancher, uh, Mac Brazel, to the area where this had come to earth, you know, he seen it on his ranch here. So my dad picked up a portion of it, this uh, CIC agent picked up a portion of it also, and uh, as it turns out, our house was on the way into the base. Uh, so even though it was late at night, my dad said, was, was thinking that uh, this is something strange indeed, so uh, he wanted my mother and myself to look at this because we'll never see this again, which was right, and we've never seen it before or since. So he had it spread out on the kitchen floor and got us up there to look at this, and he says, you know, what do you think? And that's where it started. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. as an 11-year-old, what did you think about what you were looking at? Well, first, you know, look at this. And why is he getting me up at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> a bit back, whatever, to look at a bunch of junk on the floor? And he said, look at this. This is very strange. I think this is parts of a flying saucer or worse to that effect. Wasn't quite sure what he meant by that. But uh, he said, look at this and tell me what you think. First of all, let's look for any electronic debris, any vacuum tubes, resistors, condensers, wiring. Uh, which we did, and there wasn't anything like that. Uh, so I looked at it again, I said, well, you know, why is this? This isn't worth getting up in the middle of the night for. But, you know, there's a lot of foil debris and uh, all some black plastic bakelite type material. But the most strange component of this uh, debris were, were like beam-like structures that had a kind of a strange writing on the inner surface of it. And you could see it when you held it up to the light, which was over my left shoulder of the ceiling light at that time. Cause it was dark outside, of course. So I looked down and I well, gosh, I don't know what that is. It looks like hieroglyphics to me, but uh, not really hieroglyphics either. But I do recall the color was a kind of a purple, violet hue, kind of metallic in, in nature. So we looked at this and, um, you know, I didn't try to bend it or tear it or do anything like that. So we looked at it for about 15 or 20 minutes, boxed it up, and then he put it back in the car and drove off to the air base. I didn't see him back for another day or so. Hmm. I don't know, don't know where he went. Oh, boy. You're in the um, Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Jesse Marcel, Jr. Dr. Marcel is a physician. You're in the Army, right? Uh, well, I retired from the Army in December. Okay. December, I retired. 
I'm still in active reserve, though. Hmm. Yeah, well, you're in the Army Reserve. So that means you they can recall you, can't they? Well, when I left Iraq, they said, don't unpack your, your duffel bags because we won't be getting it back. Oh, uh, boy. Exactly like the way that sounded, but uh, that's where I am now, just waiting for, <laughs> for any strange mail in the in the mailbox. So hopefully I don't get it. But You've, you've already been to Iraq, Dr. Messel? Yeah, I spent 13 months there, and I just got back in uh, November. Oh. Oh boy, that's like that's a whole nother show, uh, Jesse. I, I, that's a boy. That's a that's a much bigger show even than this one. But Jesse, I, I wanted to ask you a question about that beam that you were describing. Yeah, yeah, right. you, you, were, you were talking about it having sort of a metallic hue. Are we talking about the actual inscriptions being of a slightly different tint? Yeah, the beam so, itself was uh, like an aluminum uh, color, you know, metallic. But the writing, the, the symbols were uh, were the purple violet metallic hue. And hmm. uh, they were not hieroglyphics or, or the Cyrillic alphabet or the Greek alphabet, but they were more like, a, uh, I guess, mathematical symbols, you know, squares, circles, pyramids, you know, things like that, in a line written or imprinted along the inner surface of this beam. Well, printed or etched? You know, I don't know. I didn't try to uh, scar it with a fingernail or try to trace mm -hmm. it with a fingernail. I don't know. It's just uh, on the surface of this uh, beam. Hmm. And this definitely looked like it was machined to you. It looked manufactured. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. This, is, this is definitely manufactured. Hmm. Uh, something I guess that a lot of people would wonder, and, and it, it, of course, is on the, the, the forefront of my mind. So you have this stuff laid out. Now, I, I know if I were 11 years old, what, what I might have thought at that moment was, gee, i got to grab a piece of this stuff and bury it in the backyard. Yeah, you, uh, well, you didn't you didn't grab any of this stuff? Well, you know, that, that thought never even occurred to me. Uh, really? Uh, this is Air Force property, and uh, and I don't know what it is, so I'm not, uh, I won't keep any of it because it didn't belong to me. And that's where we were at that uh, time. In, uh, maybe at this time I would have done differently, but then it was... Uh, something that uh, look but don't keep or you know, look at that. Right. Well, I think that changes in the way our society reacts because yeah. you've had this tremendous respect for the fact that your dad's in the Army Air Force and yeah. this is government property and you knew not to touch it. And somewhere along the line between 1947 and today, kids today would just grab a piece. And yeah, that's, that's the way our society has changed. And uh -huh. I'm not sure that's for the better. Mm. Yeah, I'm wondering because it sounds to me like your father definitely thought there was something unusual about this, and I have a lot of questions about that, Jesse. But and I understand he was a very respected and respectable member of the military, and I'm guessing that's why he wouldn't have perhaps thought that maybe there would be a reason to to take a piece of this and 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 put it away because just in terms of the issue of of accountability. And and I guess it's subsequently the the things that uh, that happened really uh, you know called into question. Obviously, we're still how many years later still talking about this episode, uh, which to me is a clear indication that something unusual did happen there. And well, you know exactly. That, and you know, yeah. I would like to add that the reason he brought it by the house is at that time it was not classified. In other words, there was nothing secret about this, so he was free. He was not breaking any uh, uh, security clearances or anything like that to bring this by the house because it has not been classified. Later, it became very classified, as we know. Mm. Right. Mm. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Let me remind our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking with Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., and he's recently retired from the Army. Well, he's in the reserves anyway and might be going back to Iraq real soon. But he had an incredible experience when he was 11 years old where his father, Major Jesse Marcel, brought home something strange. So what was the follow-up, having played with this substance and all that stuff? Did your dad just take it back, put it back, that kind of thing? You know, uh, we looked at this for 15 or 20 minutes and, uh, you know, said, oh, no, what in the world is all this? But then we put it back in the box that, uh, that it came in, the box was on the kitchen floor. And uh, I followed my dad out to the car, which is a 1942 Buick. And there's, I think there was more material in the car that I did not see that he, he did not bring in. But he went back to the base, and um, my understanding is the next day he flew to uh, Air Base in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, where Colonel, uh, General Ramey was located. He was the 8th Air Force commander. Mm-hmm. And cause Colonel Blanchard wanted uh, the 8th Air Force commander to look at this also. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, plain garbage, but this is something very, very, very unusual. So anyway, General Ramey looked at this, and I, I later saw pictures of my dad holding parts of what was reported to be the debris on General Ramey's floor. But uh, I can tell you right now, those pictures that I saw was not the material that we saw on the kitchen floor. Hmm. It somehow switched the material to something totally different, and I understand, and, and knowing now what it was, it was a radar target, a rolling radar target from a balloon or something like that. So that they switched it on you. Uh, there's a switcheroo with that because uh, they're saying that's what was on the kitchen floor in Roswell. I could say, yep, it was not what yeah. was on the kitchen floor. Well, you were there. You saw yeah. it. <laughs> and I'm not seeing it. I would say, well, okay, right, and tell me nothing. But, uh, but I saw it, so I know for sure what it was. It was One of the things that... David was saying before we had you on our previous segment, he remembers the famous picture of your dad showing these items. And he looked, as David said, he, you know, something was off in the way he looked. Maybe he was very unhappy or something. He looked like he had been double crossed. I mean, he had this look in his eyes of sadness and anger. And, And it made me wonder, Jesse, what happened when he came home? I mean, what was the dinner table conversation? Okay. When he, when he came home from Fort Worth, uh, he sat both my mother and myself down and pretty much told us to never talk about this again because it didn't happen. Take treat it as a non-event because now he didn't say why, but he said, this just did not happen. Understand? And I, was, you know, I said, sure. So I didn't talk about it, not even with my friends, but uh, always had in the back of my mind, like, what the heck was this stuff? And uh, hmm. But anyway, that's the way it was for, for years. We just never talked about it, even in the family. Really? So uh, was there ever a point where you said, you know, talk to me about it? Oh, you know, in passing. You know, I, I was, uh, uh, in later years, I was I was uh, in the military and uh, not at home at that time, and, you know, going to school and so forth. And so I did not really get a chance, really, or an opportunity to, to talk that much about it uh, in later years, actually. So uh, it wasn't until after 1978 when uh, Stan Friedman got wind of the story and he interviewed my dad there in Homo, Louisiana. And uh, that's where this whole thing got started, Stan Friedman. Mm. Mm. We've had Stan on a couple of times on the show, so he's had a lot of interesting things to offer to us about this thing. So, Jesse, it it seems like if if he knew that something odd had happened and he wasn't talking about it, 
Was there any point where where he did feel that he needed to get this off his chest with you? I mean, this was a fairly significant shared experience. I mean, was there any point where in, in your in your life with him where you said to him, "Look, you know, we need to talk about this." Because it did uh, happen. No, you know, I guess he uh, actually was part of the cover-up himself. Cause I, I, I've seen him in interviews uh, that he said he was actually part of the cover-up. He uh, joined the uh, methods of keeping the thing uh, under wraps there. But uh, mm-hmm. all of us knew that this was not what they purported to say it was, like uh, parts of a weather balloon or even the mogul balloon, which was a, a top-secret device that, uh, that we had at that time. But... Uh, you know, so he was part of the cover-up, and he was a good soldier. He just went along with the road, yeah. and the road with this, and uh, and only later, when the, like I say, 1978, which is a number of years after this occurred, they figured, well, yeah, maybe it's okay to talk about this now, and that's what is how the thing broke. Okay, at that point, Doctor Marcel. What was your dad saying? What did he begin to say? Did he say, look, I kept this secret all these years? How did he break out from that mode? Well, you know, I'm not sure because I was not uh, home at that time. Okay. I'm not sure exactly, you know, what the thought processes were. Hmm. So that's where it stayed. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, he'd, he'd gone out, I guess the story broke, and uh, and he'd been interviewed quite a few times. And as a matter of fact, he'd gone out to the uh, uh, crash site there at the behest of one of the uh, television stations in uh, New Orleans. And uh, when he got back home, I, you know, I used to call him once a week. I was here in Helena at that time. And I asked him, you know, well, you went out to the crash site, was, was there any of this debris left? And he said, no, no, no. They, they vacuumed that up totally at the time. So hmm. there was nothing left at that point. So we're not and talking about debris from a weather balloon. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't have gone to that trouble to, to gather all the pieces up. What about your friends, Jesse? I mean, what was the, the scuttlebutt in terms of, you know, I, I have to imagine that people in town were talking about this. How did you interact with your friends on this, given that your dad has said, we can't talk about this, it didn't happen? But weren't people in town talking about it? Uh, no, because, uh, you know, the Roswell Daily Record, or there so after this happened, uh, killed the story. They said uh, the Air Force was mistaken. This is not a flying saucer in their captivity, but it's actually parts of a weather balloon. How could they be that stupid <laughs> to, to misidentify that? So that, you know, the story was gone at that point. Really? And it I, was just I squelched. I went down the road with it, so I just said, okay, that's the way it is, so that's, I'll accept it. Okay, there's a point, though, where I gather you probably became more curious about this, right? Well, yeah, we had occasionally talk about it, uh, but again, I, you know, I was uh, not home at that time, and because uh, I was out in the military or going to school or, or living here in Helena, so I really did not talk that much with it about it with my parents, except an occasional mention of it in the... Uh, in a phone conversation. Now, you have written a book about your memories of this and your experience. Well, you know, the book is in process. I'm going to have it out sometime this fall. Oh, okay. I, what I'm doing is uh, is rewriting it because I wasn't happy with the first uh, say on it. So I'm rewriting it so I know it's as accurate as it possibly can be in every detail as I know it. So I'm rewriting mm-hmm. it, and I, and I expect it to be out sometime this fall. And uh, people are quite interested in this book, uh, but it's not ready for sale yet. Oh, there's some pre-sales, but uh, right now the book is not out, but will be out later. Okay, the book is called Roswell, It Really Happened, which uh, you're working on. Can yeah. I ask you a few questions that would probably relate to what you will be discussing in the book, but it kind of helps sure. to understand what's going on? Okay, so we have this material that you saw. Do you have a feeling... Now, looking at it so many years later, what, nearly 60 years later now, do you have a feeling as to 
what you were looking at precisely? Is this the hull of the craft or what? Well, you know what my understanding is that there's actually two crash sites. Uh, and the debris that I saw looked like it came from the interior because it you know, did not have the kind of structural and uh, rigidity or uh, strength of these hull of its thing. Hmm. So uh, later, you know, when I learned that there's perhaps another crash site where maybe, just maybe, there might have been members of the crew, who knows, but uh, people swear to it that they were there. But uh, the debris I saw looked like it came from the interior. And uh, my theory is that uh, that they were skidding along there and they, they had an in-flight accident, maybe an explosion, blew the stuff out through the hull, and that's the debris that my dad picked up and the several miles over a hill is where the secondary crash had was. But that's just my theory. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Okay, so we have two crashes then. All right, maybe we should separate these for people who haven't tuned in and aren't aware this is a more complicated story than you might have anticipated. But before we do that, let me tell everyone, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., and he's author of a forthcoming book about Roswell and its implications called Roswell, It Really Happened. And that's you're working on now, and I gather it'll be out in a few months. We look forward to having you back on when the book's out, because I think we'd all like to, number one, talk to you about it. Number two, read it. Read a copy. David, do you want to pursue this? Well, Dr. Marcel, when you talk about your theory about how this was internal matter ejected after an impact, uh, this is not just a guess on your part. I, I gather that part of your military function has been to investigate aircraft crashes or helicopter crashes. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a flight surgeon in, in the Army, uh, Army National Guard, or Army itself. And uh, my training, part of my training, is to uh, be in on accident investigation. So I know what to look for. But you know, I was 11 years old at the time. Right. Aircraft investigator at that time. But but looking back, well, you could have. You know, kids that get yeah. are, are, are very precocious. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, looking back on, uh, I realize this is not an aircraft. You know, because I know what wrecked airplanes look like. Because I've seen them and the remains of them. So, uh, but this was not what that was. Right. That's. I, I think it's important to qualify that because you know people might think, well, you know, anybody can have a theory, but when you've got a theory about crash wreckage, it, you've looked at a good amount of it. And so, yeah. you know, obviously at the time you didn't know, but in retrospect, I, I'm, I'm guessing, Jesse, that your memory of that night, even though you were, you were only 11 years old, you know, I was saying to Gene before we, we called you up that I remember certain episodes in my life that happened at that age, and with the kind of impact this would have had, I'm guessing that that night stands out pretty clearly in your memory. Oh, yeah, because, uh, you know, obviously it does because it uh, was a very unusual event. 
and your mind tends to grab hold of these things and retain it. And uh, mm-hmm. people say, well, how can you remember all this, this detail from something that happened so many years ago? But I say, you know, if you'd have been there, you'd have remembered it also. Was there a point in your life where knowing that you saw something that was really strange that came together? My heavens, I saw something that came from outer space produced by intelligent beings, whatever. Yeah, you know, you know, from that very night, you know, I, I realized the unusual nature of this, and knowing this did not appear to be of human manufacture, and don't, yeah, you know, it's kind of a, a sense that I had that this was not of human manufacture. I can't tell yeah. you exactly why, but uh, there's a feel that you get for this kind of things, and uh, since that time on, uh, I realized that, uh, hey, we're not alone in this uh, vast universe, or even in our galaxy, that uh, there's guys out there who are smarter than we are because they can get here from wherever they come from. But now we can't do it, but we're trying. We're working on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just it made me realize that you know we're not by ourselves, that, uh, that we're actually under the spyglass, so to speak, of, uh, of more intelligent creatures who are probably watching us, looking at us, this, uh, this primitive civilization with this tribal warfare, wondering if we're going to survive. Here. You have but to then, wonder with all the crazy stuff that's going oh on. God. Oh my God! Yeah. yeah. Things, well, of course you were <laughs> you were there in one of the places yeah. where the the very crazy things are going on. So we understand. Now there are stories also, Doctor Marcel, that alien beings, either alive or dead, or some combination, one alive, one dead, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, were recovered during one or both crashes. What do you feel about that? What did you hear at the time or later on? Well, at, at the time, I, I had no knowledge of this, and neither did my dad, of course. Uh, he didn't. He, I don't think he ever saw this, because I'm sure if he would have seen that, that exotic material, he would have told me about it. But I think what they did, they kind of kept the two instruments separated. Uh, the One hmm. crew was on the debris field, the other crew was on the... Uh, saucer crash site with the recovery of whatever was there. and uh, But I had no knowledge of that. This is just hearsay according you know, for my feelings. Mm. But I know mm. people who, uh, who are pretty damn sure it was hate happened were there, and I trust their words. So you get to accept it. Now, having been part of the cover-up, okay, your dad, now later on, of course, he did talk about it. And what was his feeling about the whole thing? What was his reaction looking it over from all those years past? Well, you know, my wife actually talked to him one one day uh, there at home, and he said, you know, this was something from elsewhere. Had no idea where it came from, but he said this was not, this was some sort of alien craft. And he, he talked to her more than me about that. He went on down to describe again what he'd seen and basically mirrors what I'd seen also. But uh, he was pretty sure this was not any uh, uh, manufacturer of humankind. Mm. You know, of course, there's that book out, The Day After Roswell, co-authored by Philip Corso and William Burns, where it's suggested that we took technology from this craft and we made an effort over the years to reverse engineer it to figure out what they were doing. Do you have any feeling about that? Well, you know, all I can say is it's certainly uh, in the scope of probability and possibility and uh, uh, I don't know for sure because I had no doubt knowledge of this because mm-hmm. I'm certainly not in the loop of that <laughs> in that field. But uh, I said it's, it's possible and uh, maybe very probable. Now, another thing too, because you're in the military and you've talked about this over the years, did anyone ever come to you and say, Doctor, you know, maybe it would be a better idea if mm-hmm. you didn't say something, if you just kind of lay low on this? No, I've never had anybody tell 
tell me that or, or relate that kind of a word or message to me. Mm. So no, most people in the military are very curious about what I saw. It's uh, the subject came up quite a bit there, and and uh, even in Iraq there because you know I was in Blackhawks mostly, and uh, when we're flying over hostile fire areas, of course all attention was diverted to the ground looking for the bad guys. But once we got over the desert areas where we were not subject to hostile fire, then the conversation would go around to Roswell. Tell me, Doc, what did you see? You know, tell us all about that. So then we, you know, spend the time doing that. What about um, your mother's relationship with your dad and how it related to all of this, Jesse? Did she later on talk about things that they might have talked about that you might not have been privy to as far as his feelings about the situation or his his feelings about the stuff that he had recovered? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, we never really discussed it, at least my mother and myself, because uh, mm -hmm. I think she was just going along with the fact that we weren't supposed to talk about it. She kind of, so she adhered to that uh, feeling of I never really talked with her about that. Very much acceptance, you know, I can yeah. understand, yeah. People really, you know, it's, it sounds like your dad really took that whatever. It's interesting to me because if he really sort of, you know, here he, he wakes up in the middle of the night to look at this very excited, comes back a day and a half later and says, we're never talking about this again. That's a very severe change. I mean, that, that to me really does underscore the credibility of the situation and that, you know, it, 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 it's not something subtle where he would have, you know, sort of shut off the discussion if if he didn't feel that, you know, it was someone up above was saying to him, look, you know, you, you cannot talk about this period. That that underscores the fact that something unusual probably happened. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it does. I think you're perfectly right there because uh, the people in the know are certainly above his pay grade at that time. And uh, so he was just kind of so not to talk. And, uh, mm, yeah. And that's exactly the way it's been for a long time. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., and his father was intimately involved, not on the craft, of course. He didn't fly down, but involved in the Roswell case in 1947 involving two crashes, and his son, Jesse Marcel, Jr., saw and handled some of this stuff. The stuff that you've done to research this book, had you gotten any ideas, suggestions about these hieroglyphics you saw? There are people who have kind of gone into uh, what these hieroglyphics might have symbolized. Uh, but, you know, again, I can only, there's only one symbol that I can recall for sure that was on the, uh, this uh, being. The rest of the symbols, I kind of, kind of look like, this is what they look like, but not exactly. Maybe some are exact, maybe not. But there's only one that was really a uh, uh, genuine article. And that uh, was kind of like a truncated pyramid with a ball on top of it, solid figures, because it looked to me like a, a seal balancing a ball on its nose. And uh, so that's the reason I can remember that, because I could tie it into a common subject. But the rest of them are just resemblances. Maybe they look like this, maybe not, but uh, close to what they look like. 
but not exactly. The mm. color is the. In terms of hieroglyphics, some people suggest that the aliens were among us through the centuries, and maybe we were somehow more intimately involved with them during the time there were hieroglyphics. That's why I want to hear the word hieroglyphics. I wonder, you know. Hmm. Yeah, well, that was my first impression that this was hieroglyphic. But, right. Uh, but then looking at it again, you know, it definitely was not hieroglyphic. And did anybody take a picture of these things close up? That I was just thinking find? that. Yeah. Yes, Dave is a big photography person. He's a oh, digital man. imaging expert. And this is what hits him, the photograph. Any photographs of these that you're aware of? Of the genuine ones? Yes, of so the hieroglyphics, yeah. Yeah, oh, I'm sure there are. I mean, the debris is someplace. It's somewhere on planet Earth and probably in uh, some super secret location. But uh, as far as uh, pictures of the beam that I drew, um, yeah, I'm sure there are pictures of that around, too, floating around. But uh, but again, there's only one symbol that was really uh, genuine. The rest of them are, are depictions of what they look like. I wonder now, how come every time this sort of heats up and a book comes out, we get more interest, and suddenly the Air Force or some military people come out with their latest balloon explanation? And I always yeah. wonder, if there's nothing to it, why is there the need to keep explaining yeah. it away. Yeah. They think they doth protest too much. <laughs> you got it, so, man. Uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, there, they, there are some people who know what it, exactly what it was, uh, but they're still trying to convince everybody, hey, this is just a balloon, but a balloon is a balloon is a balloon. Even that uh, top secret mobile balloon was a, was a balloon. I mean, uh, it used the secret it had a secret usage, you know, classification, but the material is off the shelf, so there's nothing unusual about that. Now, the foil-like material, Jesse, you, you, you touch the stuff, you handle it. Yeah. We've heard accounts about how it really, you know, if you try to crinkle it up, it sort of reshaped itself. So, literally, you, you, you took the stuff and, and tried to crumple it, and it straightened itself out. Did you experience Wait, I, that? Yeah, I did not do that, but I know other people... I heard of people talking about the strange metal with the memory, and I know that my dad only saw a small part of what was out there. Mm-hmm. But my dad said one of those guys in the office took a larger piece of this uh, foil and tried to deform it with a sledgehammer, but the, it was impossible to do. So I only saw uh, a very small part of what was out there. But I did not see this, uh, this feature where you clump, crump it up and, and it unfolds. Yeah. I, I didn't try anything like that. It didn't even occur to me to do that. Mm. You, you described this other uh, black plastic, like Bakelite piece. What, what shape yeah. was it in? Well, it's like, you know, if you recall the phonograph records of the olden days, you know, when you drop on the floor, they break and shatter. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's what that looked like. Except it was not black, but it was kind of brownish black. But it looked like shattered pieces of, of uh, Bakelite plastic phonograph records. So part of it looked machined, but then part of it was broken. Yeah, that's right. It's right. Yeah. It's it just trying to... Trying to trying to get a visual for you know what the stuff looked like, and I realized again after after so many years, it's you know maybe it, 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 it's hard to visualize. Well, at least I'm having a hard time try, trying to visualize what this thing looked like. I, I want to climb in your mind and see it through your eyes. I guess that's the problem. I asked what you know. I thought maybe you know what this plastic was. You know what could it have been. Should it have been one of the uh, mogul balloons or the uh, balloons from, from the weather uh, machine? And I asked it, one, a guy with the Air Force who knew about these things. I said, could mm-hmm. this have been part of the radio sound housing? Uh, was that, you know, the radio components in a plastic housing? And he said, no, no, they were made in, they were in a place of cardboard or aluminum housing, not plastic. So this not, you could not even be fit in their description. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So they, they basically admitted that they did not know what I saw. This is years later when they interviewed me for that uh, Roswell case closed document. Mm. Uh, they, they said that, well, we don't know what you saw. Okay, and that's an interesting point, too, that so many people have said, yes, it's real, others not sure, and some say it's a lot of nonsense and maybe use words that we don't want to repeat on a family program. So to those who say... Roswell didn't happen or what happened was simply a balloon or something else. What do you tell them? Oh, goodness. I don't know. Uh, uh, those people who sticking to the story, their force uh, uh, explanation that this was uh, just a radar target and parts of a weather balloon or even a mogul balloon. I say, well, you weren't there. I, I know what I saw and I, and I know mm-hmm. what a radar target looks like because I've seen them. I was bought, one was brought to me so I could uh, compare with what I saw. And it wasn't the same thing. And uh, so I know what I saw was totally different from what the Air Force says I saw. And that's what convinced me that this is something very unusual. Because they're still trying to get me to change the story, at least of a few years ago. Mm. Hmm. Who was trying to get you to change the story? Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, of course, the Air Force should call about this case closed document. Uh, they they said, uh, well, Colonel, we know you saw something in Roswell. You tell us about what you saw. So I went down this thing. And they said, no, no, this is what you saw. I said, no, I'll tell you what I saw. And, uh, and, well, we think he saw a radar target. No, sir, this is not a radar target because I know what they look like. And even years later, uh, when we were going down to Roswell for the 50th anniversary, we stopped in Socorro, New Mexico, where all oh, the manager of the Mogul Balloon Project happened to be living, uh, uh, Professor Moore. And he brought a Mogul Balloon target, or at least a radar target, to my motel room so I could <laughs> compare it. And I said, no, sir, this is not what I saw. And I said, you know, can you, how can you explain these differences between what I saw and what you're saying I saw? And he couldn't do it. So they did ask you, huh? Uh, so all these years later, the military says is still confronting you with this information? <laughs> yeah, 50 years later, yes, indeed. Mm. Well, that's outrageous. Well, you know, it just tells you they, they protest too much. If they just let it drop and say, well, let those idiots say what they want to about this, but, you know, but they don't. They just keep hammering away at this thing. Well, the one thing that always bothers me, and this is a question I ask a lot of people about Roswell, is that it happened in 1947. And... Even though there have been a number of books about it, the fact that you've been interviewed many times, your father was interviewed, lots of other people who were involved in the case were interviewed, it still lies below the radar of believability, general acceptance. And the question is here is from 1947 to 2006, when this show is being broadcast, how do they keep something a secret for 59 years the real details all we get is these little glimmers of information yeah well you know who knows uh, i think that uh, uh, there is a uh, small arm of the government uh, called the black government that probably has all the information in their hands and uh, it's stored away someplace that is top secret and uh, i think that uh, that there's money being spent to keep this covered up and uh, but there are some individuals who know exactly what it was and they're not talking about it because they're not you know they dare not talk about it jesse why do you think they're still trying to keep this covered up what what's the point of covering something like this up for so long in well, your opinion yeah that's a good question i've often wondered about that and the only thing i can think of is kind of a disturbing thought there maybe this is something that we really don't want to know Hmm. Yeah, you know, they feel that there's, there might be a, a panic or a, you know hysteria if they really knew what this thing was. That uh, in fact we are not in control of our skies. That in fact uh, we're under inspection from a superior race. 
And uh, this might disturb some people, you know, knowing that. So maybe that's why. Or maybe it's just somewhere, it's called CIA. You know, they don't want to talk about it because they've been keeping it secret too long. They will not bring it out right now. Hmm. Maybe it's like the movie Indiana Jones, the original one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they take oh. the stuff and they stick it down in some kind of repository <laughs> deep in a government building, and everyone forgets about it. And that's yeah, the I, end I, of the story. I, yeah, some uh, there's a, a government guy asked me where did I think it was, and that's the, the exact story I told. I said, remember the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark? I bet it's in some big warehouse that's put away in a, among a myriad of boxes. But, uh, Seems like that that would be a sad thing, though. I mean, if if you know, and and there's no reason. I find that there's no reason, uh, Dr. Marcel, not to believe what you're saying. Sounds to me like you had a legitimate experience and that you did indeed handle something that most likely was not of this earth. That being the case, it's hard to imagine what would motivate people to want to keep such a thing a secret so long, especially given the fact that I think at this point people have been conditioned enough to perhaps be ready to start hearing about some of this. Yeah, I, I agree with that because uh, you know, we're sending probes out ourselves. You know, uh, we're you know, planetary probes, and, and some of our, uh, I guess, the pioneer of the Voyager, I guess, is now in interstellar space. So That's right. we're sending out only UFOs out right now. And I see no reason to keep it a secret, uh, uh, but for some reason, you know, it's just not to be uh, broached. I mean, I the oil companies don't want to hear it. It's an oil company conspiracy. <laughs> You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. We're spending a very pleasant evening with Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., and he is author of a forthcoming book called Roswell, It Really Happened, and he handled what appears to have been the debris from one of the Roswell crashes. Now, over the years, I gather in working on this book and everything, you've done your own research into ufos so there's a point i gathered where you just said you know it's not just this let me jump in and find out what's going on so where did that start well you know i'm uh, i'm not a ufo researcher okay i had this one experience and uh, all i know is what i read in the papers about this but i figure you know i'm uh, pushing 70 <laughs> pretty hard here and i figure i'd like <laughs> to get my story out so that so that at least it'll be down on record uh, in print that people can uh, read later you know mm-hmm. so i'll figure it's about time I better start getting off the stick and, and writing about it myself. Okay, now in writing about it, did you start doing a little bit of research to kind of give a background to the things you talk about in the book? You know, what I did, you know, my uh, I went, I have my dad's records and his diaries, and uh, I know he's, you know, that he's passed on a lot of people saying, well, he wasn't who he was, and that he was lying and this, that, and the other, but I've researched his files, and uh, he was exactly, and I found records that document he was exactly who he said he was, that he was there, 
and that uh, he was an intelligence officer. So my, my main addition to the book is, is going through my dad's records because uh, we had his military records. And uh, what I've done is to is to establish his credibility that he was exactly who he said he was, mm-hmm. and not like these uh, these idiots who call him a liar and they just making all this up that uh, he had an active ma- imagination. But no, he he had the credentials to say exactly what he said. Now, what things did you learn from looking over his papers about what he went through and yeah, what, he, yeah. what he discovered as a result of thinking about it, looking into it, etc.? You know, his records really don't reflect the Roswell because uh, he was told not to talk about it. So what, what his records do is just establish his credential as, uh, as one of the investigators for intelligence with Friday night. And uh, what I've done is establish his credibility. Although in his records, you know, he didn't write anything about the UFO thing because uh, he wasn't supposed to, so he adhered to that. So what, basically what I've done is establish his credibility that proves uh, lie to what these people are talking about. You mentioned his diaries, Jesse. Um, did he have personal diaries he kept at the time? And he did, and you know, and I have to admit, I've not gone through them yet. I'm still uh, going through them to see if there's anything about the you know, Roswell hmm. out there. Maybe hmm. there is, maybe there isn't. But he did have a personal diary he kept, and uh, it'd be supremely interesting if he uh, if he did jot down his thoughts about this. But I kind of think he didn't do that. Even in his own personal diary, I mean, it seems to me that would be perhaps the one place he would have written about it. Yeah, you think so. And maybe he did. Uh, like I say, I'm, I'm going through it now and, and uh, trying to find out, uh, going back to that uh, era, if he did say something or write something about mm. this. Mm. Well, if it is, it'll be in the book. Mm. It would be all very right, we'll interesting see. to see what that happens to be. Yeah. So you're still trying to put all this together. So now, yeah. looking at what happened then, I assume you believe that we are being visited and these were genuine crashes of alien spacecraft. So what's your feeling about the whole thing now, having looked at it, having had this little bit of hands-on in your life? Well, you know, it's, I've, I've had a lot of time to think about our place in, uh, in the universe, uh, what our, you know, where we are, where we live, and uh, uh, maybe uh, religious implications also. Uh, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic, and uh, what this does for me is to establish that God is, is greater than we thought it, or given Christ for being, because he created not just us, but maybe others in his own image, so to speak. And uh, that's what this has done for me. It's also made me very interested in astronomy and cosmology, because I realize that we ain't the only ones, that there's other beings out there, and, <laughs> and some of the amazing pictures of Hubble Telescope of other planetary systems really uh, demonstrate what I'm talking about. That's especially interesting, the fact that as we learn more and more about the universe, and our efforts have to be awfully primitive right now, as we learn more and more about this stuff, we become aware that there are more and more places where life can emerge from, where you get the impression that there's more and more stuff going on out there that we had expected and we had a right to expect, don't you think? Yeah, I'll just put this further down the rung of the ladder, because uh, you know, at first we thought that, well, the Earth was the center of everything, the sun revolved around the Earth, and uh, I said, no, no, uh, uh, the Earth revolves around the sun, or Tycho Brahe, I guess, and one, of the, one of the big astronomers back in a couple hundred years ago established that the Earth was not the center of everything, that maybe the sun was, but then we discovered that, no, the sun isn't even the center of Earth, 
of the universe, but uh, <laughs> that may be our galaxy is, but then we discovered there's billions of galaxies out there, too, so we're just uh, a small moat <laughs> in somebody's eye there. Yeah, just a little place, just a little blip, bitty place yeah. or a blip. Uh, but that also puts us into a larger picture, and that is at some point we have to be prepared for alien visitation. If none of this happened, if there was no Roswell, New Mexico incident, if nothing happened, we have to be prepared for the eventuality. And do you think we're doing it? How do you think, as somebody who's been in the military for years, been a physician, seen how soldiers work in the field and dealt with lots and lots of people, how do you feel we should be preparing ourselves? Well, you know, I think that... uh that there should be more publicity given to uh, what our galaxy consists of, if there are other planetary systems out there, because we only discovered planetary systems just recently. But now we know there's multitudes of planetary systems. And uh, so I think uh, the best thing that can be done for the public is to get prepared uh, for the announcement, because it will happen. One day it will occur as a... as uh, maybe when they land on the White House lawn or uh, go to Moscow or Belgrade or whatever like that. But uh, sooner or later, they, they will happen, and people need to be prepared so they're not that shocked by, by discovering for sure that we're not alone. And uh, I guess there have been some studies as to what would happen, the implications, the societal implications of, of when, not if, but when the announcement is made. Who, who would be bothered by this? And most people would accept it. But there are some people, uh, you know, I guess the right-wing people would uh, be kind of disturbed by this, but uh, but they're about the only ones who would be disturbed by it. <laughs> Do you have kids, Jesse? Uh, we have eight. Wow. Oh, my God. What, what do they think about this? Do they ask you about this? What do you tell them? Well, you know, they're kind of used to the idea. I guess uh, for a while they're kind of uh, scared of the idea, but they, they're accepting it. And uh, there's no longer the fear of, uh, of the unknown there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they accept it and have for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that gets to be an interesting thing. Maybe we'd have a third generation there looking at this entire story. Entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Now, I wanted to ask you just a couple of questions before we let you split, and that is that in the book that you're working on, you're looking at the government involvement in UFOs, and one thing mentioned here is that admissions of why the government had to cover up Roswell is mentioned in this blurb for the book. And before I ask you the question, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We're talking to Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., a physician who handled in July of 1947 what appears to be a piece of the Roswell wreckage. So let me ask you the question. What do you think of the reasons here? Oh, you know, I wish I knew. That's the $64,000 question. Uh, I wish <laughs> I had the answer to it. You know, why don't they just go ahead and let people know what's actually going on out there? Uh, again, uh, maybe, they, maybe there's some horrible thing that we really don't want to know about, but I don't think so. I really don't know what the answer to that question is. I wish I knew. Because mm-hmm. the way I'm thinking is, hey, you know, I, it didn't destroy my life, you know, doing this. So uh, I think most people would accept it. So why, why right. is this 
need to keep it a secret. Why? And you're still here, and you're still functioning, and okay. there aren't men in dark Cadillacs hanging out at your front door, although you did say that no, no, they no, asked no, you at one no. time to yeah. kind of, couldn't it be something that wasn't real? Again, it might have been fear also, the fact that maybe you had been the kind of person who would say, hey, how dare you tell me that kind of thing? I know what I saw, and maybe get a little more vociferous about it. Yeah, perhaps. But, you know, again, uh, no one has ever threatened me. I've been asked that question. I've been threatened. No, I'm not. And uh, I have had some very strange phone calls uh, from God only knows who, but uh, no threats, no nothing, no uh, no stern warnings that this will will touch you to, to a private if you talk about this. But uh, no, nothing like that. Well, define strange phone calls. Uh, people inquiring where I'm, like, you know, uh, a good example is uh, I've gone to meetings uh, on occasion, and the only people who knew I was going, at least I thought, was the office personnel and my wife and family. But uh, after I'd leave, my wife on occasion, I got a phone call from somebody saying, well, has he left yet? And uh, hmm. she says, well, yes, he has. And uh, on one occasion, I gave him the telephone number uh, to call when I got back, and uh I called the number, it's been disconnected, and it was Washington, D.C. area code. Uh-oh. Mm. Mm. It was, but the phone was disconnected by the time I got back. Really? Know, they knew where I was going, at least, you know, near, of my departure out of town. Somebody, mm. who knows? That's weird. I'm not being a, a, a conspiracy nut either, but... Uh, but I think somebody kind of keeps up a little bit. Mm, they're watching. They're listening to the show. Maybe that's why we had a little bit of difficulty in getting a good connection for the yeah, show. Yeah, there you go. That's maybe. Mm. It's the international bankers are here, and they're trying to stop this show. <laughs> exactly. People shouldn't take me seriously. So one more time for those who are tuning in at the end of the interview, and we're, we'll tell you you can hear it again in case you missed the full broadcast. You can download the episode from our site or courtesy Apple's iTunes. So, Dr. Marcel, the book Roswell, It Really Happened, is coming out this fall. Give us one more time a brief overview of where you're going to cover and what issues you're going to talk about. Basically, it'll uh, cover in maybe more detail of what I saw my feelings, the effect it has had on my life, my family, uh, the effect it had on my parents, and uh, the credentials that my dad are well-established in the book, and uh, my own thoughts, my private thoughts about this, uh, the way it has uh, affected my life and just broadened my knowledge incredibly much. Hmm. So that's basically what the book will cover. Well, you've broadened our knowledge a lot about what happened to you and having this first-person account makes us wonder more about what's happening. Stay tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse Marcel, Jr., thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Well, thank you for inviting me. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. 
Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the paracast Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. So, my friend, Dr. Marcel is certainly a man of a few words. Well, but the words are important words. Based on what he just told us, I'll tell you what the most compelling piece was, Gene, for my money. Uh, Dr. Marcel absolutely verifying that the pieces of foil that were in the photograph that was, or the photographs that were taken with his father, those were not the same things his father brought into the kitchen that night. So that for me is as, I mean, I, I don't want to call it a smoking gun, but that's pretty strong stuff. The thing about that is that he's a government employee and a doctor, a fundamentally simple, small town man in the best sense of the word. Also a religious man, and he's not going to play games here. He's not in it for the glory, for the best-selling books, that sort of thing. What he says here is what he remembers as he searches his memory of the events. This is definitely not something he's making up to get his 15 minutes of fame. No. No, Dr. Marcel, I would say, is absolutely credible. In my, in my opinion, certainly, I think you would probably agree with me. Um, he has no reason to make any of this up. It obviously made a very deep impression on him in terms of, just like what you and I went through, the, these experiences at a young age that leave you really a changed person. Uh, obviously, we could have spoken more with him about his overall feeling about the rest of the UFO field, but it doesn't really matter. The, the important thing about Jesse Marcel is that he... At least I believe he handled stuff that came from um, a crashed ship. Where that ship came from, we don't know, Gene, but it, uh, I don't think it was human in origin. And I think that Dr. Marcel's story is incredibly compelling. I'd like to ask you listeners to pay particular attention to what Dr. Marcel says. But also, as you listened to the interview, remember that because we make this available as a podcast, as a downloadable file, it means that you can go back and listen to something over again to understand precisely what was said and how it was said, which is just as important. And I'd also like you to post your messages at our forums at theparacast.com. That's the paracast.com and follow the links to our forums where you can give your reactions to the Marcel interview. I'd also like you to listen to the next one where we're going to feature Bob White. Bob White is author of UFO Hard Evidence. And what does he mean by hard evidence? Well, for one thing, he saw a UFO, I guess, about 20 years ago. And in the wake of that sighting, he saw something fall from the UFO or UFOs that he observed and he recovered that artifact, and over the years, he's tried to have it analyzed. What an odyssey. What a fascinating story. Coming up next on The Paracast. You're in The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. 
Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. So, Bob, before you had your UFO encounter some years before, you had what you describe as a paranormal experience in your book, UFO Hard Evidence. Would you tell our listeners about that? Well, you know, actually, I didn't know that it was... Uh, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm connecting this with a UFO experience. Uh, all I know is that it was something very, very unusual. Uh, there is a police uh, report on it. Uh, I had the police at my house because I, I was in this uh, house that belonged to my aunt, and uh, I was uh, repairing it for her uh, rent-free, and my wife was pregnant at the time, and so it worked out pretty good for us. I kept hearing uh, in the middle of the night uh, uh, after I got the kitchen uh, all repaired, it was, it was almost as if something didn't want me to complete this house. Uh, I was awakened in the middle of the night. She and I both sat up in bed at the same time with these loud stomping uh, footsteps uh, upstairs in the, in the upper part of the house. And uh, it was quite alarming. Uh, I called the police, and uh, they came out. And as, soon as, as soon as they got there, the, the noise stopped. Uh, they left. It wasn't five minutes until the noise started again. This sounds like the classic horror film where everything happens when the authorities aren't there to hear it. Right. But after, after I called them, they said the, the last time I called next to the last time I called them, they said, we'll just go around the block and park. And if it happens again, call in, and we'll get the call on the radio. You run out in the front yard and... Uh, or the backyard, I'm not sure which yet. And I'll, and I'll, my partner will uh, go into the front yard or the backyard. Yeah, you run out in the front yard, my partner will run back in the backyard, and I'll run up the steps real quick, and whoever's in there, we'll catch them. And I thought, you know, and turn the porch light on. I thought, well, that's a great idea. And they no more than left, and it started again. And so I called and uh, did exactly as they said. I ran out, in the, ran out in the front yard with the porch light on. He ran, one of them ran in the back backyard, and the other guy ran up the stairs, and we still we found nothing. So I was too embarrassed to call him again after that. But it happened again, and uh, it kept happening off and on all the time. And I ran up the stairs at one time, and all I, we had a room on the left and a room on the right. I had nailed the doors shut. Uh, everything just just to be sure that no one was coming in that way nailed all the windows shut but uh, before that happened I, I ran up the stairs and all I saw was a shadow up there then I put talcum powder all over the floor in one of the in uh, one of the rooms and uh, I just waited until the next one heard the uh, noise again the footsteps and it shook the whole house went up the steps the next day and uh, there was that one bare footprint in the middle of the floor. It looked like a child's footprint. The normal number of toes and everything? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure. I, it, it seemed like it. Okay. I, I, you know, I never even thought about counting the toes. It just looked like a child's footprint. Okay. I wish I had it counted them now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, how many years ago is this? Well, that happened probably... In no, I'd say uh, probably 1981 or 82. Uh, there should be a record of that uh, in the in the uh, at the Kansas City Police Department. I think they keep those things for a while. I'm not sure. Okay. 
Now, did you ever get a feeling as to what it was? Because I know you use the word in your book, paranormal. Is that what you think it was? Well, I thought, you know, what I thought it was, I thought it was some sort of supernatural thing, like a a ghost or or something like that, because I'd never had anything like that happen to me before. And then nothing, after we moved out of that house, nothing happened again after that until 1985. And that was after the wife and I was divorced. Mm. I hope this wasn't the reason you got divorced from her. No, no, no. Okay. That wasn't the reason. To, uh, but things started happening after that. She was terrified to stay in that house. Obviously, we went through all sorts of things in that house. We set up uh, trip wires with cameras and uh, everything. and never caught anything. Mm. Oh. Do you have a feeling now as to whether it might have been maybe a poltergeist? You've heard of those things, you know, where things yeah. start moving I, I, around the house. Yeah, I did think that. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about poltergeist where someone told me about it. And I said, well, that sounds exactly what it was. Like, you know, when the pots and pans were stacked up on the stove and and, uh, and the wife said, well, that loud noise. And she said, well, I don't know what that was. It was the pots and pans that I had washed and they were sitting on the stove and they fell off. And I went into the kitchen, and uh, they were still stacked up on the stove. So, but that's what it sounded like. Okay. Now, this was strictly limited to this house. It yes. didn't happen after you moved? No. Okay. Nowhere else. And have you been in touch with anybody who occupied the house after that to see whether it happened to them? I went back uh, a couple of years ago and uh, to check out the house, and it had been torn down. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah. That might be a good idea. Well, I, I, I don't know whether that was the reason it was torn down or not, but it, it was just gone. Oh, that's really, that's really weird. But yeah, I'd like to have found out. Of course. On the Paracast, we are talking to Bob White. He's author of a book called UFO Hard Evidence. I'm going to find out what this hard evidence is or was in a moment. But I wanted to frame it with the fact that this wasn't his first unusual experience. He had this as a predecessor. We don't know whether it had any relationship or not. But now, some years later... You had the UFO sighting that forms the frame of this entire range of experiences you've had. Would you describe what happened? Well, uh, very briefly. Uh, uh, you don't have to be brief. Take your time. Okay. Well, it was in, it was in uh, as near as I can figure out. I never kept a good track, track of time uh, because uh, I was a business, you know, traveling down the road and uh, one week here, two weeks there, uh, my brother and I. And um, I just never kept uh, track. Sometimes a birthday would go by, and I wouldn't even know it. Okay, understand you were a musician performing on yeah. the road. Our listeners and, should and know nothing, that. Nothing entered my mind other than other than entertainment. My brother and I used to write comedy routines in the car. We was going down from job to job. Uh, the only thing that was on my mind ever was in it was music and entertainment. Uh, I, I never had any thoughts about UFOs. Or, in fact, I didn't even think they'd put a man on the moon. I thought that was all fabricated. Well, you know, there are people who still believe that. <laughs> well, you know, I'm still not sure. <laughs> that but may be another I, subject. <laughs> I know what I saw. Okay. And, uh, this was in, um, uh, I left Denver, Colorado with a, with a lady friend in her car. And uh, she was going to Las Vegas, and she gave me a ride to Vegas, and I, I would have to bring the bus back. Uh, she lived in Vegas, and I met her there in Denver, and just an acquaintance. And uh, my brother and I only had one car, and he didn't want to go to Vegas. 
he wanted to stay there. So I said, well, that's all right. I'll ride there on there with her, and I'll bring the bus back. Well, it was a hot, hot day. I remember that. And she was driving. It was late at night, and no air conditioning in her car. And I had the window down, and that cool breeze coming in there, and I just put me right out. I went to sleep. And she woke me up. It must have been 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I don't know if you're familiar with the high desert or not. But this was between uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, and Cisco, Utah. And it was closer to Cisco, Utah. And in the high desert at night, uh, it's a clear night, and the stars are just numerous, numerous stars, and, and the moon is out. And, and it's almost like daylight. You can see forever. And we were on the old Highway 6. Uh, this is before the new highway went through, the super highway. And no traffic on the road at all. Never was at that time of the night, to tell me, from people that lived around there. And uh, she woke me up and asked me what this strange orange light was up ahead. And there was a railroad track on the right-hand side of the road. And I said, well, it looks like a railroad light to me. And I went back to sleep. Well, it must have been doing some pretty strange things because she woke me up again and she was terrified. And this thing was about the size of a full harvest moon. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in the Midwest, but when the sun goes down here, it's bright, bright orange. Yes, and yes, I'm familiar with it. Well, that's what it looked like. And I thought, well, you're right, that's not a railroad light. So I stayed awake to watch it. And as we drove, it got larger as we got closer to it. We rounded a bend in the uh, in the highway to the right, and then I realized that the uh, the light was on the left-hand side of the highway and not the right-hand side. And we didn't see a car inside, nothing, movement uh, for a long, long time. So I just reached over and shut the headlights off, and we drove this way for a while. And as we got closer to this thing, I could see that it was huge. And it was, as I say, it was just a light, just a round ball of light. And uh, I turned the ignition off. And I said, coast up to it as close as you can. Stop. I want to get out and look at this. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. that thought, Bob. I know we're right in the middle of the sure. thick of it, but I want to tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Bob White. He's author of UFO, Hard Evidence, published by Galdi Press, and that's, of course, our friend Phyllis Galdi, who's publisher also of Fate Magazine. Of course, we had her on the show previously, and she's a close friend and advertiser, and she's published Bob's book. Now we're getting into the thick of it here. What happened next? Well, and we pulled over and stopped. She she was rather hysterical. She didn't want to stop. She must have been doing some things when I was asleep that I didn't see, because I couldn't imagine anyone being this frightened over just seeing a light. But anyway, uh, I had her stop the car, and I, and, uh, and I got out. She begged me not to get out of the car, but I did anyway. I got out of the car. I'm standing in front of the car, and I'm shielding my eyes, trying to see if there's something solid inside this light. And I, it was just so bright, I couldn't tell. And for some unknown reason, she turned the headlights on. How high was this light? How high in the sky, do you think? No, it was on the ground. Oh, it was on the ground. Okay. It was on the ground. It was behind a little embankment, and uh, I couldn't see the bottom of it. But I could tell that it was round. It was vertical, not horizontal round, a vertical round. And 
uh, she turned the headlights on me. And when she did it, when shot straight up in the air as fast as my eyes could follow it, and off to the left a little bit. And it connected to two other lights that looked like two blue neon tubular lights, one on top of the other. I uh, found out later uh, from someone else there, Tim Edwards, that uh, he videoed uh, something, something similar to that in the daylight over his house. And uh, they, they authenticated it. And when they did a uh, close-up on it, uh, when they enhanced it, they saw that it was two, uh, two long, tubular long uh, uh, things uh, with a space in the middle. So, and I saw mine at night, so they looked blue. But it looked pretty much the same. And uh, then this thing ejected something from it. And I say ejected because had it fallen straight down, it would have been miles from me. I'd have never been able to find it. And it came right back toward me. And I didn't know whether somebody was shooting at me or what, but I was pretty frightened then myself. And I saw where it hit the ground on the other side of this little embankment, and so I decided to climb this thing and uh, this hill and find out uh, if I could see it. And I, I saw the groove in the hillside. Now I understand that your lady friend wasn't very happy about you doing this. Oh, she was scared to death. She was uh -huh. screaming at me to get out of there. I saw the groove in the ground. I saw this thing. I followed a little bit, and I saw where it was laying there in the, in, in the sand. Now, this sand is like talcum powder, and I, I, I saw it laying there. It was still glowing hot. I assume it was hot. It was glowing. I went back to the car, and she's, by this time she's outside of the car, and she's hysterical. She's crying. And I said, look, just get back in the car and uh, I'll, and wait for me, and, and I'll do the driving, and uh, I just want to check this out, and, and we'll be leaving. And I took the keys from the ignition for two reasons. One, I didn't want her to drive off and leave me up there in the middle of nowhere. Well, that certainly is one important, the most important reason of all, right? <laughs> really? <laughs> and? The other one, I wanted to see if there was something in the trunk that I could pick this thing up with. And I opened the trunk, and, of course, I had a little suitcase, and there were some overnight things in it. And, but the only thing in the trunk that she had in there was, a, was an old brown cotton glove. And I took the glove and walked back to the object, and it was no longer glowing. And I didn't, I run the back of my hand over it, and I didn't feel any heat from it. I figured it had cooled down rather rapidly, but uh, I didn't want to take any chances, so I didn't put the glove on. I just dropped it on top of it and picked it up that way. And I brought it back to the... Uh, car and uh, put it in the uh, trunk of the car and by this time she was she was laying face down in the front seat still still hysterical and uh, I got her calmed down a little bit and I started driving out of there she didn't even know I picked this object up if she had of uh, she wouldn't have let me back in the car I'm sure oh, I understand that <laughs> Well, I couldn't because, you know, I didn't know what it was, but I, I wasn't afraid of it for some reason. I wasn't thinking about radar or, uh, or radium, I mean, or anything like that. I was just The only thing I was thinking about was I, w I want to know what this thing is. I was curious. And I was looking for a place to uh, to get a drink. And uh, way I found, finally found a place in Cisco, Utah that was open, and uh, but it was just a little diner. Since then, I've gone back out there, and the diner's still there. It's uh, gutted. There's there's nothing in it. Graffiti all over the wall and and everything. But but the building is still there. It's a small small building, and there was just room for four or five stools and two uh, tables with a couple of chairs at them. At each table, and it was like those old chrome dinette sets. I don't know if you've ever seen them or not, but there was a couple of. Uh, prospectors or miners, or what a, I assume prospectors in there, and they overheard us talking because she was really hysterical. Still, they overheard us talking, and uh, one guy came up to me. He said, uh, 
you guys, he said, you, you folks saw something out there tonight, didn't you? And I said, yeah, we saw some lights. He said, did you report them? And I said, well, no, I don't know who to report them to, and why would I? And he said, well, he said, we see them here every night. And he said, we report them, and he said, they just laugh us off. He said, they won't investigate. Maybe coming from a couple of outsiders, they'll investigate it. And I said, well, I wouldn't know who to report it to. And he went back to the table and came back and he handed me a piece of paper with a number on it. So when we left, I called the number. There was a phone booth right outside. It's an old green phone booth. I remember that. And I called and it was a local number. Now, since then, I have found out that there is a, a, a Army base there, Air Force base. It's called Greenfield, I believe. Okay. Or Green River. And uh, I called, anyway, it sounded like uh, uh, some sort of authority on the other end. I told him that we, what we saw, I reported it. He said, well, what you saw was probably some headlights, uh, reflections from headlights from another car, which there wasn't another car on the highway all that evening. Uh, and he said, uh, or some swamp gases. Or, yeah, it just blew me off. And I said, okay, fine. So I didn't tell him about the object. I just, I just uh, let it go at that. Hmm. But I found out a lot since then. Well, I gather you had rather an unusual odyssey in trying to find out what this object was. Now, at the time that you recovered this thing, and I see you took the proper precautions because you didn't know what it might be, and you, did your lady friend know that you recovered this thing, or did you hide it from no. her? No, I, I, I kept it from her. Okay. I was, I was afraid that she wouldn't want it in the car. Or maybe not want to see you anymore, which... <laughs> well, but she didn't. I didn't ever see her again after that anyway. Well, maybe we can understand that after all this. Yeah, well, she was in. She was. She lived in. She said she lived in Vegas. I brought the bus back, the Greyhound bus back to Denver. Oh, okay. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell everybody we're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Bob White. He's a, right now a retired musician, but he hasn't retired from the UFO game. And part of that reason is this little object that he recovered and now what I'd like you to do is try to be as specific as possible in our next section, describing what this thing looks like to you. And then we're going to take you on the odyssey here of trying to find out what it was and maybe why we still don't know. Well, I've been lied to a lot, whether intentional or unintentional, I don't know. I, I know that uh, my first, the first thing that I did was I, I called, uh, someone gave me a number to call the National Institute for Discovery Science. Okay. NIDS. Uh, I called and talked to them, and uh, I talked to a uh, Keith McDuff, and he said, uh, send him a piece of it, and they would analyze it at no charge to me. Well, I didn't want to cut it, but I did. I cut a small piece off the small end. 
sent it to him. And uh, after about uh, oh, six weeks, I'd say, he called me. and uh, Or he didn't call me. I called them. And Pete Duff was no longer with him. There was now John Alexander. Okay. That sounds like the government for you. And uh, so I said, okay. Uh, uh, he said, I don't know anything yet. He said, it's being uh, analyzed at the uh, New Mexico Tech. And he said, as soon as we find out something, I'll let you know. I said, all right. So I waited another week or so, and then he called me. He said, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but he said, it's not anything extraterrestrial. I said, I'm disappointed. I didn't say it was extraterrestrial. What made you think I said it was extraterrestrial? I was like, well, I said, well, uh, I want to find out what it is. I thought maybe it might be a secret project our government was working on. And he said, no, he said, it's it's just uh, common, ordinary aluminum. I said, okay. Well, the next thing you know, I thought, well, it's still an unusual story. So um, I talked to Unsolved Mysteries, and Unsolved Mysteries said, uh, well, uh, send a piece of it to um, Los Alamos. And I said, uh, no, I'm not going to cut it no more. And they said, uh, well, uh, would you send them the object? And I said, no, send them the object. Would you take the object there? And I said, well, I would. Except that I've heard that, you know, Los Alamos is a government institution. I'm afraid they might take it away from me. No, he said, I'll tell you, he said, if, if you'll do it, and they'll agree, uh, they'll agree to uh, analyze it. Paul Dunn will be the person that will do the uh, analyzing on it. And he said, Paul Dunn is the brother to the producer of Unsolved Mysteries, Terry Dunn Muir. I said, really? Yes. He said, nothing's going to happen. I said, so I agree. Well, uh, to cut the story a little bit shorter, I went to uh, Los Alamos and uh, took the object out there, and they agreed that it was the most unusual object they'd ever seen. There was about seven or eight scientists that looked at it. Only, Only one or two of them would touch it. The others wouldn't even touch it. But they said they had to cut a piece of it off again. So they didn't. I let them do that because they said they couldn't fit the object into the machines uh, to get an analysis on it that it was too large. So I figured, well, I want to find out what this thing is. So they wanted to take the end piece off of the big end. Now, this thing is shaped like a kind of like a pine cone, only a lot larger. And it's uh, basically aluminum. But uh, if it was solid aluminum, uh, when, it, when aluminum melts, it just comes down as a solid glob. This did not. This came down with scales on it and flow lines on it. So it was hot and it was melting when it came down out of the sky. We know that for a fact. But there's 30, so far they found 32 different earth elements, uh, rare, rare earth elements in it. Things like strontium, europium, gadolinium, uh, weird, weird things that are very, very expensive. And uh, they have some strange properties in them. Uh, I, I could tell you so much about this thing if we have the time. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, we have the time, so I want you to be as specific as you need to be to explain what's going on. Go ahead. I, uh, after, after I took it to Los Alamos, Dr. Uh, Robert Reiswick was the one that was going to do the analysis on it, not Paul Dunn, because Paul Dunn was a metallurgist. And uh, Dr. Uh, Reiswick was a retired man about my age, and he said they only called him in on spatial projects, and my project was spatial. So I, I had to leave because it was going to take about a week or two uh, uh, to get the uh, analysis on it, and I had to come back home. Well, they flew me back home. And I got home, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I never did get an answer, and then nobody ever called me. And finally, after two or three weeks, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to find out. So I called Dr. Reiswick at home. He gave me his home phone number. He was very, very excited. 
And he said, Bob, he said, this is something I've been looking for all my life. This is definitely extraterrestrial. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no. He said, I'm not. He said, it's something that's, he said, this, this is going to change history. And I said, would you mind repeating that so that my wife can hear it? I said, we only have one phone, and she's not going to believe me. So he repeated it, and she heard him say it, extraterrestrial. And uh, so I called all my friends and told them. And I have a friend that's a newspaper reporter for the uh, paper in Springfield, the news leader. And I called him and told him, naturally, I'm really excited about this. So he calls Dr. Reiswick in a couple of a couple of days later. And Dr. Reiswick said, I didn't say that. He denied that he said it. And he said, my bosses have instructed me not to talk about this with anyone. And he hung up on him. Which means, of course, that his boss said, make sure he understands you didn't say what you actually did say. Yeah, right. Uh, well, when I found out they were lying to me, I started taping my telephone conversations. And if push comes to shove, my friend, I've got the proof. Okay. All I've right. So now we have the double speak. I've got them on tape. Right. You, so you got the double speak in this particular case before you were able to tape the conversation. So what happened right. next? Well, the, the only reason that I decided to tape these things is because I was writing about it, and I, I was a published author. So this made me uh, uh, able to uh, tape my conversations legally so that I would get everything correct. Okay. That was, that was my out. So what happened after that, I had a... Uh, I had another scientist call me from La Jolla, California, uh, Chris McIsaac, and he said he worked for Scripps and uh, that he was the analytical manager, and if I would send him a piece of this, he was very intrigued by the story and that he would analyze it for me at no cost. And I said, well, <laughs> boy, that's great. So it, everything went fine for a while. He said, well, he sent me charts and everything. He said, we're almost there. Uh, he said, we have one more definitive test to do on chromium. And he said, as soon as we do that, he said, we'll know for sure. He said, we've almost got a terrestrial signature, extraterrestrial signature. But if we do this on chrome, he said, it's the definitive test, and it'll, it'll say you're either pregnant or you aren't. He said, there's no doubt about it. And I said, great. And all of a sudden, he quit. And he said, I'm busy. I'm, I have to go to Europe. I'm working on the European Space uh, Program, and I work for NASA, and I don't have time to finish this. I bet he got that job after <laughs> this you know, I have no idea. But then he said, the only thing I ask you, he said, since I've done this for you for free, is that you don't use my name or the name of the facility that I work for. And I said, well, isn't this something? No scientist wants to tell you, wants to put their name on something. It's amazing to me. So then I went to Roswell, New Mexico for the for that UFO convention. I thought it might be fun, and I'll take this thing out there and let everybody see it. So I did. And I got out there. I got the lady that run the place, the manager out there. She said, I have something I have to show you. I said, all right. She said, someone has an object exactly like yours. And I said, you're kidding. She showed me a picture of it. And I thought, uh-oh. She said, I said, where'd you get this? And she said, I, I, she said, I got this, uh, she said, from a friend that took it off the Army website. The Army has it. And I said, oh, really? Well, I looked at it, and uh, the two guys that were with me, I had a scientist with me. And we looked at it, and it looked like someone had taken a picture of the object that I have right off of the website and was trying to trap me into saying that, you know, the Army had one. And I thought, well, I'm, we're not going to do anything about this until we get back Missouri and check this out. Well, we have a friend, uh, John Greenwald of the Black Vault, and he has more information from the Freedom of Information Act than anyone in the United States, probably anyone in the world. John's now with the uh, History Channel. But we contacted John, and John said, 
Oh, yeah. He said, uh, yeah, there's, there's this picture of it. He said, I, I've got the files on it. He said, it's uh, uh, from the, uh, the CIC files, Counterintelligence Corps, and the file number is 202085. And I said, wow. So every, everybody there at the uh, museum that I was in, we looked it up, and sure enough, there it was on the uh, on the Army website. And they said, their words, not mine, that it was an object that was uh, from a flying saucer recovered in Denmark in the 1940s before Roswell. And it's identical to the one I have. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're joined this evening by Bob White, author of UFO Hard Evidence and published by Galdi Press. And it tells about, number one, an unusual paranormal, almost poltergeist type phenomenon, and then his recovery of this artifact that may or may not have come from this UFO he saw. And now he's trying to have it analyzed and he's running into a brick wall. And then we're hearing about possibly another artifact like this going back with World War II, you were saying? The scientists that came into my museum called it, uh, uh, they recovered it from a foo-foo fighter. That's what they used to call it. Yeah, foo fighter, right. Yes, yes, foo fighter. Right. uh, We almost want to call it foo foo because sometimes we think that's what it is. (laughs) Where they came from. Uh huh. Remember the old comic strip, uh, Smokey Stover? Oh, that's before my time, my friend. See, I'm old enough to remember these things, and and that's what they used to call a foo fighter. Where there's a food, there's fire. Well, you know, I used to go around saying I'm as old as the hills. Yeah. And now I find that you're older in the hills. Yeah, I sure am. <laughs> okay, well then at least at least I know I've now met somebody who's at least three or four hundred years older than I. But yeah, seriously right. speaking, okay, so we got this thing, and you say it looked like your your object or what? Oh, it's, it's almost identical. It's almost identical, and they, their words, not mine. It came. It was. It, they got it. They recovered it from a flying saucer in Denmark in the 1940s. I didn't say those words. They did. We said, we have the documents. And the documents are in the book. Yes. By the way, I should tell the audience that the book consists of about one-third the narrative of what happened to him and his efforts to get it analyzed, and then a huge amount of appendix material where he shows the efforts to analyze the object, his polygraph tests, which you passed with flying colors, all that stuff. So, all right, so let's go into this other thing. Did anybody ever analyze this other object? Yes. Okay. All right. Now, Dr. Gilbert Jordan came into the... I had a museum, and I had this on display. Okay. We'll ask you about the museum in a moment, but go ahead. Well, we had the Museum of the Unexplained. It's on a bus now, so we don't have the building. But uh, Dr. Gilbert Jordan uh, saw... They did a news story on it uh, on KY3 back here, uh, the television. And Gilbert Jordan lives here in Missouri, in Willow Springs. He came into the uh, museum, and he said, I have to see that 
that object? And I said, well, sure, there it is on display here in the case. Went back and looked at it. He said, could I hold that? And I said, well, sure. So I took it out of the case. Like that. He said, it's identical to the one that I worked on that I, that I analyzed. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, he said, the Army has one just like it. And he said it was at Area 51. I said, you were in Area 51? And the little short guy, well, yeah, he said, I've been in all of them. And he showed, and I, and I thought he was a nut at first. And uh, then he showed us uh, above cop clearance papers, Uh-oh. cards. He was definitely uh, at Dugway, at Green River, at Area 51. He was at all these places, every one of them. He backed it up with the proof. And, I, and he said, "This is a, this is identical to the one I worked on." And he said, "He said I know your story is true." And he said, "I know it's from a UFO." He said, "Because that's where we got ours." And he said, "He said I want to help you." Well, he's still in the background. He's still helping. And I have another NASA scientist there, uh, Dr. Gibbons, and uh, he's been helping us too. But uh, and they're doing it for scientists. They're doing it for science reasons. You know, and but that's, they don't want to say anything about this. The government doesn't because this is going to change history. Now it looks it, to me like every time though that you've tried to have this thing analyzed, you kind of hit against a brick wall. Exactly. Did you ever actually get this thing analyzed beyond the basics? Uh, no. There's one. There's only there's one definitive test, and it's on the chromium. And there's only a few places you can do it. Scripps is one in uh, La Jolla, California, which they won't do or did do and not telling us. Another one is NASA. The other two are uh, in a foreign countries. They can't do it. The one at NASA said their machinery, the equipment was, they had an operator that died. No one else knew how to operate the equipment. As soon as they trained someone, uh, Dr. Nyquist of NASA said that he would be glad to analyze it. But so far, that's been over a year and I haven't heard from him. So. Everybody is giving you a story. <laughs> Everybody is telling you a story saying, hey, we'll do it, but not this year and not next right. year. But you've had these half-hard efforts to get this done, and, and they promise you the moon, and they give you a, they don't even give you a hill. Well, this and, thing does strange things, too, you know. Gene. That's what I wanted to really get into. Okay, so we have a situation here where we have the object that you recovered, which apparently has been partly analyzed but not completely analyzed but in your book you describe some strange symptoms and there's one which really sounds almost like a comedy movie gone bad and that is you're in what las vegas and you're trying to exhibit this object at a press a, conference at a press conference and lots of weird stuff went on and as i said it would sound almost like a marx brothers or even a woody allen movie if it all wasn't true tell us true well you know i put the object in the we had a wall safe a digital safe and and, and i tried it two or three times i put my atm numbers in it so i'd be sure that i had the right numbers that i wouldn't forget them and uh, i tried to save two or three times it worked fine so I put the object in the safe that night, went downstairs to the casino and, you know, pulled a few handles like everybody else did and lost a few dollars. Came back to the room, got a good night's sleep, got up the next morning, showered and shaved, and got ready to, to uh, go to the press conference and said, uh, well, the people aren't here, they're waiting for you downstairs. And I couldn't get it out of the safe. The safe wouldn't open. And so I called him down at the desk. And he said, well, you probably put the wrong numbers in, and the safe goes to sleep when you do that. 
So we'll send someone up. So they sent someone up there, and there was some kind of a gizmo that they plugged into the thing. And he said, okay, it, it shows open, but it wouldn't open. We're still locked. And they were pretty frustrated about it. So finally they called. I said, look, there's people downstairs waiting for us. We've got to get down there. i got to get this object out of the safe. I'm starting to get upset myself now. So they sent for maintenance, and they came up with a drill, and they drilled the safe open. That's the only way they could get it open. And when they took the battery out, there's just these little 9-volt batteries is all they were. Uh, the, the, the batteries drained. It was busted open to the bottom and drained out. And uh, I said, that's an old battery. He said, no, we change these batteries constantly. That's a new battery. And I said, well, does this happen often? He said, it never happens. And I said, well, it happened now. And uh, this is all on video, too. So uh, one of the uh, scientists, uh, Dr. Gibbons, uh, uh, well, they're both with us, Dr. Gibbons and uh, and Dr. Jordan both were with us. But Dr. Gibbons said, uh, I have a friend when we get home in Springfield that's a dentist. And he said, I think this thing is emitting some sort of uh, electromagnetic uh, field. And he said, when we get back home, I'll get some dental x-rays, and we'll place them around this object in a paper cone and underneath it and see if we get any exposures. So he did that, and we got four exposures. Have you taken a Geiger counter to this thing to see if it's emitting any radiation? Yeah. Yeah, there's very, very little. There is some, but it's very, very little. So you're not going to turn glowing in the night. No, no, no. After all these years. And your no, wife, what does your wife think about all this now, that you, all this stuff you've gone through? Well, uh, she's pretty, you know, upset about it because it has cost us both a great deal of money. But uh, she's behind me 100%. She's sitting here right now, as a matter of fact. And uh, she's as curious about this thing as I am. Indeed, I have to tell everybody you're in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And we're talking to Bob White. He's author of a book called UFO Hard Evidence. And this is a small book, folks. It's not something you're going to take all night to read. It's maybe 120 pages or so. About a third of the narrative describes his paranormal and then UFO encounter. And then the remaining two-thirds, the odyssey of playing around with this strange object, which messes around with safes, leaves, images, on dental x-rays mm-hmm. hmm. and uh, EMF, okay. uh, the electromagnetic field. Where we are down here in the in, um, in the Thule's, you might say, in Missouri, uh, we can't even pick up an AM station, radio station. But yet, using the uh, EMF meter on the object, we can get the e- uh, AM stations. Oh, it's also an antenna. Yeah, it's kind of kind of weird. Kind of weird. Oh, let me ask you a question here, just for people who are tuning in late. You actually physically still have it somewhere around you or in this museum of yours? Okay. What is it? How big is it now and how much does it weigh after all the work that's been done on it? Uh, It weighs uh, uh, 1.7 ounces and it's uh, about, oh, I'd say eight inches long. It started out about 10, but uh, Los Alamos cut a big hunk off of it, which they didn't return to me. Mm. 
And so, you know, and I'm, my question to them was, uh, you know, if it's, uh, in fact, Dr. Reiser asked me if he could keep a piece of it, and I said no. After he made me angry, I said, why would you want a piece of it? And while he said, I like to have a piece of everything I work on, I said, well, you're not getting a piece of this one. Okay. They got it anyway, a large hunk of it. Now, okay, it's eight inches long. Now, I gather it's... It tapers at one point. I saw a picture of it. So how wide how is it? How thick is it? Well, at one end, I'd say uh, probably it's uh, oh, two inches in diameter. And the small end is probably uh, oh, maybe three-quarters of an inch. When you touch it, what does it feel like? It just feels like a piece of metal to me. Okay. It has the scales on it, like a scaling effect, where it melted when it came down. Now, well, you, you know, one of the reasons that uh, that the uh, book is basically uh, technical information is because I'm not important. What's important is the object. And I felt that people would like to know more about the object than me. Okay. So I, I wanted to make it as technical as I possibly could. Now, I only have a seventh grade education, so you know, I, I really had to struggle with this thing. In putting together this book, therefore, you had to have some help to get everything assembled. Oh, lots of help. Sure. Lots of help. But what I did was I had to do a lot of reading and a lot of studying. And uh, in order to, you know, I couldn't even talk to these scientists when they first came in. They were way over my head. But now I'm, I'm to the point now where I can understand a lot of the things that they're talking about. Okay, but what do you want to do now? You got this object, what, 20 years ago. You've made some efforts to have it analyzed, and it's sort of analyzed a little bit here, a little bit there. But maybe there's no definitive report. And I can't promise you that today somebody who's listening to the show will say, give me a little piece of it, and I'll have the answer. I mean, if somebody wants to do that, send your letter to gene at theparacast.com, and I'll forward this to Bob White. But other than that, and there's not much hope for that, I'll be honest with you, because you've certainly been working with it for a long time, and it hasn't quite happened. What do you expect to do from here on? Well, there's, uh, uh, there, there is a, a, a man, uh, Dr. Goka, uh, uh, who is at MIT. He has a piece of it now. Hopefully, we're going to do something. And then I have another, uh, another one who I can't divulge their name right now, but uh, uh, they are a nuclear physicist. And they are in Texas, and they promised that uh, that they would help with this. This is a thing that will change the course of history. I, I don't understand why people don't want to know about it. Well, certainly, if they could prove it's not extraterrestrial, this would certainly right. just drop it. You could just get back on to your life, enjoying your retirement. But the yeah, fact I that it's left sure. uncertain, that's what drives, I can imagine, a lot of people crazy and certainly has to drive you crazy that you yep. can't get that final resolution. They will not say it is not extraterrestrial. But here's, here's something. That, are you familiar with Philip Class uh, before he passed on? Uh, yes, yes. Are you familiar with him and uh, uh, Joe Nicole and uh, Skeptic Magazine? Of course. Okay. I said, here's how desperate I would be. I said, okay, uh, uh, nobody's going to tell me what it is. Maybe I can get somebody to tell me what it isn't. So I contacted Skeptic Magazine. I have the emails to prove this. And I said to them, look, why don't you take a piece of this uh, object and prove that it isn't extraterrestrial? And they wrote me back an email and said, does this mean you're going to turn the object over to us? And I said, well, of course not. I think you knew the answer to that before you asked. But I said, I do have some pieces of it, and I'd be glad to send you a piece of it to analyze. They sent another email back and said, can't do it. We don't have the funds. 
What are All they right. afraid of? Let me ask you a question here. How much money would it cost to do a full scientific analysis of this thing, stem to stern, everything? Well, it's, it's going to cost quite a bit to do uh, the, the uh, analysis, the isotope ratio abundance test on uh, chromium. Like I say, there's only four places in the world that can do them. And uh, it's, it's going to cost uh, several thousand dollars. So you're figuring what? Three thousand, five thousand to do all the work. Around five thousand. Okay. All right. So basically, do you hope then that maybe by selling copies of this book and other possible benefits, maybe lecturing or something, you can get five thousand dollars, which doesn't seem like a lot of money in two thousand six, to get it this work done. It wasn't at one time. At one time, I had that kind of money, but I've spent it all uh, on the museum and, and uh, everything. But but here here's the situation. How's the book going to sell if no one knows about it? See, they won't. None of the mainstream media uh, would have it. They don't. Want, they wouldn't touch me. They think I'm a nut. I guess. Our listeners know about it right now. I don't say you, you suddenly get ten thousand orders tomorrow, but certainly our listeners know about it. And I'm happy to mention it both on the Paracast.com website. That's the Paracast.com, and in our message boards and on the show. I'm happy to mention the book, UFO Hard I Evidence, from Bob that. White. Can you get this like at Amazon Books or one of those normal places that you buy books they from? They won't handle it. Okay. I've tried. The only place you can get it is through Galdi Press or through me. Oh, okay. And and uh, the Amazon won't handle it. But what's the other one? Uh, Barnes and Noble. They won't. Hey, they won't touch it. Okay. It's, it's GaldiPress.com, by the way. Okay. Right. GaldiPress.com. That's where you go if you want to get a copy of the book. And my website is UFOHardEvidence.com. Okay. Just like the book, and and I happen to have a few hundred copies of, of the same book. <laughs> You know, it's 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 amazing to me that uh, that people don't want to know. You know, we have so much going on right now over in Israel and Lebanon and everything that uh, nobody wants to hear about uh, UFOs. Well, maybe we'd like to hear if there are extraterrestrials out there who are wondering what is wrong with us that we have all these little tribal conflicts and we just can't get our acts together. And I know if I was flying that UFO, I was flying a spacecraft looking at this crazy planet, I'd either come here for the perverse entertainment, you know, like WWF, like to watch yeah. people beat each other to a pulp. Maybe, right. maybe Earth is the WWF of the universe. You, you know, that that could be. Uh, you know what Dr. Gilbert Jordan tells me? Yes. He said, don't you think it's rather weird we haven't had a man back on the moon? And I said, you know, I never thought about it. And he said, there's already a base on the dark side of the moon. And look at there, Buzz Aldrin just came out with, uh, he saw the UFO. You saw that, didn't you? Or you heard that, didn't you? I heard about that, yes. Yeah, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin just came out with it. He said, after all these years, there was a UFO. They saw it. Well, I'll tell you what, this is a fascinating story, and I'm going to want our listeners certainly to comment. If our listeners have a comment or a question, go to theparacast.com, click on the link to our forums, and ask the questions. If you have any specific things, write it to gene at theparacast.com. I'll forward it direct to Bob White. He also has this website, ufohardevidence.com, ufohardevidence.com, just the way it sounds, ufohardevidence.com, just like the book book that he wrote. Anything else you have on the website that we could look at? We, of course, have the greetings from you, and what else? 
let me tell you something. We started a, a, a website, UFOHardEvidence.com. It's a, you can get in there. Uh, but here's another thing, too. We thought maybe we might get a little bit of money for an analysis, and we, we put... We got videos, we got lectures that I did in uh, Laramie, Wyoming, and uh, places like that. And we're charging $6 for six months. Okay. $5.95 for six months. That's a dollar a month, you know, and it costs... <laughs> It costs us more than that for the website. But anyway, a Flame Television in England did a show on me. And I tell you, it was just absolutely phenomenal. Flame Television. I, you can't, you can't get it over here. But if you'd like, Gene, I have, I have copies and I'll send you a copy. I appreciate that very much. I want to thank you again for joining us on the Paracast once again. The name of the book is UFO Hard Evidence. And this is not the book that takes you a week to read. It's maybe 120 pages. Two thirds of it consists of analyses and other related material. The narrative itself is very simple straightforward story takes about the first third of the book and if you go to ufohardevidence.com you'll learn more bob white thank you for joining us on the paracast did you get my song i have your song I'll tell you what, if we get a chance, I can't promise you if we'll do it on this episode, maybe on a future episode. Oh, I don't episode. care. It's just a fun song, that's all. No, I appreciate it. Yes, I got your CD and I got your song. I'm going to send you a DVD on oh. the, the uh, Flame TV. Okay, I appreciate You're that. You're going to love it. Well, it's better than Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> it really is. It, I mean, it's just absolutely great. Hey, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. This is a Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Well, that, uh, except for that little bit at the very end, uh, I don't know about bases on the dark side of the moon. It's an interesting theory. I, I don't know how true that is, Gene. But it would seem to me that, like, uh, like Dr. Marcel, this is a fairly credible gentleman. For the most part, I would say that what I just heard is fairly credible, and I'm fascinated by the runaround he got trying to get this thing analyzed. I think that says, uh, I think it says volumes about the potential for this thing being genuinely of uh, some sort of extraterrestrial origin. And that whole thing about the other one, that there's another piece, where the heck do these guys keep all these artifacts, Gene? What, where, where is that room that the military has where they've got all this stuff? I think you and I need to go there, like, right now. I think that's the room that you see depicted in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the one beneath the Pentagon where everything is dust-covered and they throw things down there and you never hear from them again. Uh, this makeup, the, the elemental makeup of this thing, uh, from what I've read online about this, and I, 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 don't, I don't have the book, so that's something I'm going to have to read. I really would like to read it, but this sounds like a very odd object. And I'll tell you, when I first saw the picture of it on our discussion forums, 
I looked at it and I thought this thing traveled through the air very quickly, and that that ridging is clearly the effect of this thing falling molten being affected by air, but yet not smooth striations like you might expect. These very distinct, harsh striations almost suggest that this thing was ejected from something, that it didn't just free fall, that it was accelerating downwards in a way that makes it sound like it was projected or expelled from something quickly. Gee, I'd like to go see this object, but only $5,000 to analyze it? We, that's that seems like a pittance. You know what really surprises me is the fact that Bob offers to send this to a group of skeptics, a skeptical group, and he says, "I'll give you a piece of the object. Go ahead and analyze it. Prove it's not extraterrestrial." And you know what? They wouldn't touch it. No, that definitely didn't sound right to me. I have to believe, though, that, and, and I just want to play the the skeptic here for a moment. If, um, if there's money to start. A museum, there's got to be money to actually analyze this thing, because without this thing, you don't have much of a museum. Yes, that kind of bothers me, too, that he can afford with some help to start this UFO museum, but can't pay for the analysis. On the other hand, there's another fact here, if we look at a, another point of view. If he pays for the analysis, there may indeed be the stench that he had a point to prove, an axe to grind, and that taints the results. But if an independent party pays for it, it has more of a level of credibility. And who is this Dr. Gilbert Jordan, the guy who he mentioned um, told him that he had examined the other object? Who is that guy? That guy had above top secret clearance and was at a lot of these facilities? Hey, Gene, we got to find this Dr. Gilbert Jordan because that guy sounds like a guy who's holding some answers. Isn't that always true about these alleged scientists? They're here today. They're gone tomorrow. They won't commit themselves. They'll say something, and when you try to check it out, well, I guess it's easy with Bob White, though. You know, he's a simple, easygoing gentleman, lives in a small town. He flies under the radar. His book's not a bestseller. And it's a lot easier, I guess, to ignore him than confront the implications of what he saw and what he has. Yeah, it sounds to me like he, he'd like an answer. And I think we need to help him get that answer. We need, to, we need to go out and find someone who will have this thing analyzed, Gene. Well, maybe we should be the ones to respond to the challenge. So let me raise the issue. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're capable of financing or you know someone who would like to analyze the artifact recovered by Bob White, and this means you have the facilities to do the job properly, okay? It has to be done properly. Send your messages to us at news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if it looks like a credible offer, we'll send it on to Bob White and we'll see what happens. Also, if you have a comment that you'd like to make about the show, send us the email or post it at theparacast.com's message boards at theparacast.com. We'll have more excitement next week on The Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.